Hey, everybody. Charlie Epstein here at Epstein Financial Services and Business and Booths. And I've got the pleasure of being with Joe Navarro, the spy catcher. Joe is a world-leading body language expert. He spent 25 years as an FBI agent working in counterintelligence and counterterrorism and also trained FBI agents in the art of reading body language and catching spies. So, Joe, without having to kill me first, okay. <laughs> can you tell our listeners who were some of the greatest spies you helped capture? Well then, Charlie, I really would have to to uh, to hurt you. First uh, okay. of all, it's it's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, we've known each other for a while, and finally, you have me on your show. So I'm yeah, well, I had to kidnap you in the back of a bus in D.C. <laughs> after you gave a great talk uh, for our friends at American Funds, who, by the way, yeah. is going to be a sponsor when you come out here uh, December eighth. That's. West well, that's terrific because uh, I, I I love working uh, w with those uh, those folks and uh, and you're right and where we were taking that bus that the day we sat down together in Washington in that bus we actually went by one of the locations where I was uh, I was privileged to debrief a um, and I and I really can't tell you his name. But it was a it was a famous um, uh, colonel with the, the KGB, and he had uh, he had defected, and uh, it was it was one of these things where we were driving him to a an alternate location, and uh, it. it uh, you reminded me with that question of of the uh, the debriefing that I did of that individual, which took probably a month just on my end of, uh, of of talking to him this was during the cold war era this is back yeah. uh uh 86 80, 87 but um i don't really like to talk about the names of these individuals but um i mean washington dc in the 80s it was the espionage capital of the world and uh, and that was it was interesting to be sitting next to you as we're driving through all these locations and all these it's, memories it, are yeah exactly all these faces are popping up right yeah yeah, yeah all the famous statues as we were driving through the night right yeah it, it was fun it was so it was uh yeah so what is it about uh, spies or terrorists or liars, body language, you know, what has their body language told you over the years? Well, you know, as, as we were talking that, that day, the, the thing that stands out about body language is that so much of what we do, um, is really based on body language. Um, you can tell when someone's having a, a really good day, when they're animated and they're excited and uh, they're looking forward to something. Um, we can tell when someone um, really feels confident about a, a product or or a service or anything else. And the same thing, you know, with uh, in, in, in the realm of counterintelligence, we're looking for behaviors that stand out that says, this is how I behave every day when I am just doing my regular job. But when I'm operational, um, these behaviors stand out 
that say, in essence, I'm up to no good. And, um, and just as we often as parents see our kids, you know, maybe whispering or giggling uh, to each other and, and we say, all right, you guys are up to something. Um, whether it's terrorism or criminal activity, um, there's, there's just certain behaviors that at a minimum say something is up, something is going on, and we can count on those behaviors to uh, to to alert us, and and so that's that's why I spent so much time um, in the FBI um, pursuing those behaviors to, uh, to to help us understand what's in the mind. And isn't it? I, I have this you know curious question because in in my mind I'm thinking all right, someone who's a trained spy for the KGB. Mm-hmm. I mean. Aren't they aware of the power of their body language and being able to master that so they're not giving away those signals? Well, that's, you know, I get this question all the time and it's a very valid question. But the thing is, you know, you've been in negotiations, you've been in in business deals where you're looking at the person across from you and they may be holding very still but they can't control, for instance, or have no uh, idea of what they're doing with their hands or what they're doing with their lips. You know, their lips may be compressed and uh, indicating some sort of uh, psychological discomfort. And the same thing happens in, in the real world of, uh, of espionage where, um, yeah, operationally, you know, you're supposed to go for a three-hour, um, what we call a, uh, a, a, you know, a dry cleaning walk, where um, you're out trying to detect surveillance, a sur- surveillance detection run. But what happens is that it already you're signaling something's different because normally when you leave the house, you go straight into a building or straight into a store. And all of a sudden now you're today, you're meandering today. You're wearing your soft shoes today. You're looking at your watch more often than, than not today. You're smoking more. Um, And that's because these are all these patterns that you pick up, right? Yeah, you pick up on the patterns that say something is different. I'm under yeah. stress. Remember that great Clint Eastwood movie where uh, he's sitting down to eat that hot dog and he looks over uh, over the counter or looks back through the window and the, the, the camera shot looks at this parked car and there's cigarette butts and the engine is running. And, uh, and he says to the, uh, the guy at the restaurant, Call call nine one one. There's going to be a bank robbery. <laughs> right. Go ahead. Make my day. Call nine one one. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm going to ask you later about Reagan, but the timbre between Clint Eastwood and Ray. You know, well, Nancy and I are glad that we're glad that we're glad. Is pretty close to Clint Eastwood's. Go ahead. Make my day. I, I think it's from that area of California that uh, that they were both from. I was I was at the airport one day and um, and the Clint Eastwood was was walking around. You know, no entourage. I mean, he dropping just cigarette butts. <laughs> no, he was. You know, he towers over everybody. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, and uh, uh, somebody. Uh, 
came over and, and uh, asked him something. And, and he did that with that same voice you're doing. He said, no, thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> you feel lucky today asking me a question. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to jump to Gorbachev and, and, and Reagan, because yeah. when I first saw you speak, uh, probably a year and a half, whatever, uh, down in D.C., the last <laughs> picture you put up was a picture of Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev. Yeah. And then you shared the story about having interviewed Gorbachev. Um, and you, uh, why don't you tell that, that story about what yeah. happened that first day at Reykjavik? And then I'm going to share something. I just am in the middle of both the biographies on Ronald Reagan. And it was really fascinating after hearing you talk. So it, it, it was it was a fascinating period. I mean, to take you back in time, the the atomic clock, uh, the, the, you know, the atomic scientists had the atomic clock at about three minutes to midnight. And it, it was it was a very uh, it was a very unstable time because. The, you know, the Soviet Union was going through its own issues and uh, and nobody knew what was going to happen. Nobody nobody knew how it was going to uh, turn out. Um, the meeting was in Reykjavik and there was a lot of hope placed on that meeting, but nobody was sure what, what would happen. Reagan went in there and um, and, you know, he was. I mean, he was resplendent. He was tanned, you know, standing there tall. Um, he got to the uh, meeting house first and uh, and it was cold. I, I, I think it was something like 23 degrees. And he's standing out there just with a jacket. Everybody else is shivering. Uh, not him. He looked like he was, uh, uh, you know, he was on the uh, Pacific uh, Coast Highway. And, uh, and Gorbachev exits uh, this overheated um, uh, limousine. I mean, when the door opens, you can see this, the steam comes out and he's all bundled up. They had bundled him up with, uh, with a real thick jacket and he's got this gray um, scarf, scarf and a hat. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he, he yeah. comes out and, and, he, and he says, I came out uh, of that uh, of of that vehicle, and I looked up because Reagan was about eleven steps higher in, in front of the uh, the edifice, and I just I ignored the media and I just looked at Reagan and I said, "This is it's over. We've lost. It, it, it's lost." Yeah. Now, for for you, you got to remember, for a world leader, right? The, the second largest uh, nuclear arsenal in the world. This is a man that controlled 11 time zones, right? Moscow is closer Gorbachev. to- Right, yeah. Gorbachev, Moscow is closer to New York than it is to Vladivostok. That's how big it is. For him to say that in that moment, just from how Reagan looked that, that it was over, just speaks volumes to just how overwhelmed he he uh, he he was made uh, he he felt and at the same time how underwhelming his his own um presence there was and uh, and of course there was no deal 
um, basically, uh, you know, all the nonverbals that we see after that were, were one of, uh, no, we're not going to go through with this. And that forced uh, then the, the Soviets to, um, to uh, come back uh, to the table. So uh, it, it was a powerful moment, a very powerful moment. Do you see any similarities? You're making me think about Trump and G and what's going on between China and the U.S. right now. And, you know, they got to the edge of the negotiations and the Chinese supposedly reneged on everything. Yeah. And now we're at this place. And when these two men get together, I imagine you've watched them and have to be picking up on the on the body language of the two of them. Right. Yeah, I am. I mean, you 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 can't help but pick pick up on the body language. But at the same time, as uh, as uh, one of my my instructors years ago said, um, you, you know, never ignore words and never ignore uh, history. Um, when uh, when when Richard Nixon went to uh, to, to to China. Uh, uh, I believe it was um, the uh, the prime minister uh, was it Chow and Lai. Yep. It, it was it was talking to him and uh, and they were talking about changes in the world and and he said to him and this this goes to the 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 uh, the Chinese mentality and he was asked Richard Nixon asked him he said so um, if if you're if if you're really pro uh, revolutions let me ask you this what do you think of the French Revolution. And uh, Chow and Lai said, "Too early to tell." <laughs> Think about that. Yeah. Think about that. That was yeah. 200 years ago. Yeah. With you know, with the Chinese, they're always thinking the long game. Yep. They have been around for a long time, and they're always thinking uh, uh, ahead. I, I have this philosophy. Whenever I'm I'm in a country, I I I talk to the uh, the cab drivers, uh, and uh, I was in Bogota right before the uh, 2008 when the economy here in the states collapsed, and I remember uh, at, talking to the cab, and he said, uh, "No, I we're not taking dollars. We're only taking Deutschmarks." And <laughs> I looked at him and I said, "Why?" He, he says nobody's taking uh, uh, no, nobody's taking dollars right now, and it's like they're 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 the pigeons of the world. They're, they're it's an early warning system. When I was in Taiwan, um, I uh, not too long ago, they they uh, the cab driver. Uh, I said, you, you know, your English is perfect. And he says, yeah, but I'm 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 working on my mainland Chinese. Uh, uh, in, uh, in in my and I'm working on my Mandarin, and I said, "Why?" He says, "Because mainland China is the future." Well, you know, it's funny. My brother lives in Beijing, and we can debate this whole thing. But as I said to my brother, just remember the 1980s. Japan was going to eat our lunch. Oh yeah. yeah, and they've been in a recession, depression for 30 years, and yeah. financially, the problems that China is going to have yeah. pale in comparison, but we can get into that. But I did want to, yeah. I wanted to go back to something I read about Reagan in that moment you just talked about yeah. when he appeared without the overcoat, without the umbrella, yeah. the jet black hair. Yeah. So the suntan. Right. In one of the biographies, before he left to go to that meeting, 
one of the biographers talked about how he was going to wear an overcoat. And one of the aides came up to him and said, some unknown aide uh, in the White House sure. said, Mr. President, you cannot wear your overcoat to go to this meeting. And Reagan was like, what do you mean I can't wear my overcoat? You know, it was all. And Don Regan comes in and starts to yell at this young assistant, like, <laughs> who the hell are you? Get out of here. But the young assistant stood his ground and said, Mr. Reagan, you cannot wear your overcoat. And he really speaks to everything you talked about with body language. And as I'm reading the segment, I said, thank God I met Joe Navarro because I would have never, I would have just gone right through like, yeah, he's wearing an overcoat. What's the big deal? Well, then when you told that story that you just told about the power of that body language and the impact, that's pretty amazing that that young man was sharp enough to know what that impact was going to be. So I want to. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. It's uh, it, there's a recent example of uh, what social scientists have uh, have shown, and I I'm not sure if if uh, if I had that available to me when uh, when uh, I was with you the last time, where you, you you take an individual and you put him in a in a sweater and you walk him in to an office and try to get him to uh, to land a meeting with a senior executive. Not gonna happen. Not not gonna happen. But you take the same guy, put him in the same sweater and put a, a, a Tommy Hilfiger uh, a logo on that sweater. And it goes from 13 percent chance to 59 percent chance. And one of the things that social scientists are, are looking at always is, well, what's the social what's the smallest denominator that will influence people? Um, you know, and we forget that how the office looks, how the office um, is laid out, uh, what, you know, the, the, something so simple as the, the, uh, the seating arrangement can contribute to that psychological comfort that, uh, that's so beneficial. Yeah, we actually, it's interesting you say that we actually just moved into a brand new office last fall. We renovated this building. Uh, the response has been phenomenal from existing clients, new clients coming in. I mean, it, it has the warmth of a home, but the power and statue of a really solid environment. But I had a referral from an accountant, a gentleman owns a small business, came into the meeting. He was an attorney, spent the whole meeting telling me all the reasons why he wasn't going to work with me because he's never paid anybody to handle his financial affairs. But at the end said, you know, if you can convince my wife, then will work with you. So the wife comes in and she's sold 133%, comes back to get more information. Long story short, they never follow through. So I call him a few times, doesn't take the call. I finally call the accountant and the accountant's like, you showed the man how he was going to save hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes and et cetera. I said, well, call him up and ask him why he didn't come back. And the gentleman's response to his accountant was, have you seen his office? Have you seen his office? I mean, I'm not, no wonder why he gets paid so much money. (laughs) And the accountant was like, moron, yes. (laughs) He's saving you a thousand times what you're paying. Never came back, it's fine, right? It's, you know, it's, it, it, you, uh, if, if you have to, if you have to pretzel someone into cooperation, 
no. for something that makes perfect sense, uh, it's not worth it. <laughs> no, you move on. You move on. So on. how how does you know with all the years that you've mastered this really yeah. science, how does the brain search out gestures? What what's the pro, yeah. you know what's the process that happens? Yeah, that's that's uh, that that's a terrific question because it really is all about uh, it really is all about the brain. I mean, um, from the moment uh, we are um, in the womb, we're we're accessing the world, uh, we're listening to the world when we're when we're born, we already know our own mother's. Um, voice above all the other voices. Uh, we know this because we, we, we orient uh, on that. The brain is constantly assessing the world out of necessity to see who can I count on, right? So those figures in my life, that, that warm voice that I know, what can I rely on? what is happening that is different. So we have an orientation reflex that looks at constant changes. Something moves through the room, a person walks through the room, a dog walks through the room and babies orient on that. And we are constantly seeking psychological comfort. So the the brain the, the the subconscious of the brain is always active it's always assessing the world around us and it seeks to know what is going on who are you do i know you or i don't know you and 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 so forth process information um and uh, as i said deal with with the complexities of oh my environment is changing or there's a threat to my environment by age 2 we're very much in tune and in fact it's kind of interesting it's only at about age 2 that for instance we begin to uh, react to things like spiders and snakes prior to that we don't so we and that's about the the time that we sort of become more emancipated from from our our um, our mothers we 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 walk around more we run around more and so forth all our lives we are we are seeking to understand others we look at e at, at each other's faces to see what information is there we are constantly uh testing and validating. Um, if I say, good morning, Charlie, I'm looking to see if, if, if that's pleasing to you and so forth. And so this back and forth, this communication, it, wh where's that headed? Well, it, it, number one, it's headed to protect us uh, from, from threats. Number two, um, non-verbally, this is how we pick our mates. This is, you know, we, we, we find our loved ones. We find those people that we're m most comfortable with. And, um, and we also use it to communicate how we really feel in real time. There's a, there, and, and, and this is probably the, the most important and yet the most ignored that quite often when we're face-to-face -face with a client, when we're face-to-face -face with someone, that it is in our facial expressions where people will take comfort 
and will realize that we mean what we say, that we support what we say, that we are confident about what we say. Um, otherwise, as as you know, why are we having these these uh, these webinars? Why are your webinars so so powerful? It's because we get to see each other, and. Right. Uh, so so we're constantly feeding the brain. Our brain wants to be fed. It loves novelty. And uh, and that's why we like, you know, we like to take trips, tourism, um, why we want our brochures to look different each and every time so that they're not identical. Um, we have to be thinking, what are the needs of the brain, in essence, and how we can fulfill that? And and if you understand that, then you understand the power of nonverbals to both communicate and to influence. So you talk in uh, your books about gestures or, or, or strong signs of leadership, you know, yeah. leaders that have strong – talk yeah. about the steeple. Yeah, so we often see it, uh, you know, the, the steeple is the bringing together of the fingertips, both hands, fingers very, uh, very wide uh, uh, apart. And what's interesting is here's a behavior. It's the only behavior that we have studied that spans the whole globe. Um, it's in every culture. So we know that it's hardwired in our brains that communicates I'm confident about what I'm talking about. Um, we know that it's universal because uh, in 1974, I was studying children who were uh, born blind and they will perform the steeple having never seen it. Mm. And so we know that it's a, it, it's a confidence display. We also know from um, studies that my own company did with, uh, with attorneys and witnesses that, for instance, when an attorney puts a witness on the stand, even though the attorney is more than 11 feet away from that witness, when the attorney steeples, it actually potentiates the message. Uh, it adds to the value of that witness, even though they're not sitting next to each other, because we know that the, um, in our case, the mock jurors, not knowing what the behavior is, are nevertheless picking up on that behavior at a subconscious level. Wow, that's amazing. And yeah. is it just, it's funny because yesterday I was with uh, doing meetings with employees of a 401k plan we manage and a young woman who was born in uh, either Taiwan or you know, one of the Asian countries. And mm -hmm. she always punctuated everything with thank you so much, thank you so much. Now I yeah. know the prayer is part <laughs> of that. Yeah, but she was also a very strong, confident young lady, and I was taken by the fact that she, while she was being gracious and grateful this way, it seemed to me she was also declaring to me, you know, I'm in charge of what I'm doing here and uh, and taking a strong stand. So I was thinking about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, the gesture you're doing, the the bringing together of the hands high near the the face, right. in a way, this is a a nonverbal honorific. It's an honorific because it's giving tribute to you. But always remember the the this steeple is a in a way is a modified precision grip. 
um, that uh, whether we do it with one hand where we grip something, index finger and, and uh, thumb, or we, we bring two, you know, our index fingers uh, and the rest of our fingers together, it is a precision grip. And we usually do this when we are having a singular thought or there's a singular concept being uh, described. And so in this case, this, uh, this tribute, this honorific that's being given to you um, shows you that th this person has, has thought well about what they're talking about, even as they're, they're, they're paying you a, a, um, a, a tribute. Um, and, um, so, you know, so there's a, a powerful nonverbal, but think about some of the other ones that, uh, for instance, you know, people ask me all, uh, all the time, you know, do you watch the TED Talks? Why are TED Talks so powerful? And I say, you know, the, it's in part, it's about good storytelling in about 18 minutes. But I said, what's the big nonverbal? What's the big nonverbal in TED Talks? And everybody just kind of sits there and never answers me. And I said, there's no podium. There's no podium. Right. And we favor being able to see the complete person as imperfect as we are, um, as, uh, you know, some people are in, uh, in, uh, in suits, some are in jeans, some are in wheelchairs, some come in every, every size conceivable. But what's the beauty of it? That they finally figured out that we humans like to see each other in, in, in our totality and that in business, when you can sit side by side in a, uh, on a couch or you can sit at angles to each other and there's nothing uh, blocking that view, that uh, we relish that because we're, we're seeing the complete person and this, once more, contributes to that all-powerful thing we call uh, psychological comfort. Interesting. So I want to change gears just a little bit. I know yeah. you've written close to 14 books. Does that sound yeah. right? Well, yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm actually working, <laughs> yeah, thir 13 books. And right now, uh, I don't know why I do this to myself. I'm working on my <laughs> 14th book. Charlie, just stop me somewhere along the line, and, I, and I'll join you in, uh, in Park City one day. Okay, we'll have you definitely out. All right, but so how did you come about to write Read em and and Reap? Reap. Right, with Phil Helmet, one of the most what? accomplished Texas Hold'em <laughs> poker champions in the world. Yeah. You know, decoding poker tells. Tell so, us about that. That's yeah. Good. I had been, I had done a feature for uh, Discovery Channel uh, called uh, More Than Human. And it was about the ability of humans to detect things and see things and, uh, and so forth. And I was just talking about body language. Lo and behold, Annie Duke was on that show and she was talking about how she, how well she can read uh, poker players and, and stuff. And so we developed a, uh, a, a friendship. We're, we're still very good, good friends, even though I, I I, I don't really play, I don't play poker and, uh, they probably you know, don't want you to play poker. They, they, they pay me not to, <laughs> they, they pay me not to. I hear they have and, a con, we have a contract on uh, show <laughs> not to appear at any games. 
I'll tell you what, if, if I didn't have the video on, it, it, I, I would think, you know, Mr. Eastwood is uh, right next to me. So, so Annie, I, you know, I, I was uh, telling Annie about uh, some of the articles that I had written for the FBI that are in the public domain, and she began to read, read them. Well, about a year later, I get this phone call from somebody's gotten my, my, uh, my private line, and um, he's, this guy says, hey, I'm, I'm putting on a seminar in, uh, in, uh, in Vegas, and uh, I'd like for you to come and, uh, and talk about body language and uh, poker tells and all that. And, uh, and I said, who, who are you? And, uh, and, and he, he says, well, I, I'm Phil Hellmuth. And I said, well, I don't know who you are. And so I hung up on him. <laughs> okay. At this, at this point, the man's won 10. At that yeah. point, he had won 10 He's up to bracelets. now, right? Yeah. <laughs> he yeah. had won 10 bracelets in the World Series of Poker, and I hung up on him. So 20 minutes go by, and I get another phone call, and it's from Phil Helmuth's manager. And he says, look, Mr. Navarro, um, listen, uh, Phil Helmuth is very serious. Um, he's not used to having people hang up on him and, uh, we're, we're putting on a seminar. And I said, look, you know, I grew up in a very strict household. Um, and you know, we just didn't gamble and I don't know anything about poker, but I can teach you about how the brain works. And, um, so they hired me that day. And uh, and in the end, for four years, while Phil ran the World Series of Poker Academy, um, I think I was teaching there four times, uh, four times a year. And what was interesting to me was <clears throat> how easily it parlayed the, the understanding of nonverbals um, into the into the game of poker, because in the end, we're dealing with the human brain and. Um, you know, you're, you're either excited about your hand or you loathe your hand, you know, one, one or the other. And, 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 and in between, and I have to say, uh, you know, at least with me, Phil was, Phil was a, uh, a, a real gentleman. And he said, look, Joe, the stuff you're teaching, nobody knows that because, you know, for the last 20 years, everybody's been reading Mike Caro's book on poker tells you're introducing us to things that nobody has ever written about. Like, you know, the happy feet when, when you, uh, when you have the, the nuts or a great end. And, um, he said, if, if I find you a, uh, somebody to help you with the poker end of it, will you write a book? And, uh, and he, he was, um, I, I tell you, he was a real gentleman. He lined it all up wow. and, uh, wrote, uh, read them and reap. Uh, and, uh, and that book was uh, number one for two years in the poker world. Wow. And, uh, and, but you know, to me, it, 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 there was no, you know, some people said, Oh, you're come on. You've gone from the FBI to teaching, um, <laughs> Uh, poker aficionados and I said what's what's the difference you're teaching about how the brain works and how it reacts to the world and um, I think most people would be impressed with that you went from <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the government job to the 
pioneer consultant <laughs> right, to championship poker players. So, yeah. But, know. you know, Charlie, I, I met some uh, I, I met neurosurgeons. I made I met psychiatrists. I, I uh, one day I'm, I'm sitting there giving a class and uh, this guy comes up to me, shakes my hand and uh, hands me two tickets. And it's uh, and it's Jerry Seinfeld's uh, manager. Uh, there at Caesar's Palace, and uh, he's he puts them in my pocket, and he says, "I just wanted you to know that I really enjoyed your presentation." <laughs> wow. So uh, yeah, Jerry, I don't care. Jerry, you gotta help me, Jerry. <laughs> and then you went yeah. off to the show. Yeah. So you started to talk about growing up in a family that was uh, very conservative. Yeah. You know, didn't play poker, learning that stuff. So yeah. talk a little about your background and and yeah. where you were born for our, for our listeners and viewers. So I, you know, I was born on the island of uh, of Cuba, and um, I in uh, in in nineteen nineteen sixty one. I'm going out for uh, to play with my friends. And all of a sudden, why the Bay of Pigs was happening, right? Yeah. All of a sudden I look up and there's an airplane firing machine, uh, it's machine guns. Wow. And my father comes running after me and tackles me and, Mm. uh, and knocks Mm. me down and he covers me with his body and this plane, which later, um, uh, I, I learned was a an old B-25 Mitchell from World War II with uh, machine guns blazing. And it was right in the middle of the Bay of Pigs invasion. Mm. And, um, uh, you know, that night the lights went out. uh, The the, uh, Castro troops were all over the place. And and that's when we decided we we needed to leave, uh, leave Cuba. And uh, you know, this is one of those situations where I actually came to this country as a refugee. It wasn't our intention to move here. We we came here because things were so bad. Um, I mean, I I still remember uh, men being rounded up, and you could hear the the uh, the firing squads at the mm-hmm. stadium where they where they were being shot, and. Um, and you know, so I, I ended up, uh, as with so many refugees, in uh, in Miami, and then uh, played football. Uh, Lavelle Edwards at uh, Brigham Young University recruited me to go play football out there, which uh, I, I I didn't do very well. I think I lasted uh, three days, um, and uh, and then went uh, went into the FBI. I was uh, uh, recruited to go in the FBI second. I think I was, yeah, the second youngest agent ever, ever hired. I was 23 and, uh, somehow spent my, uh, my career. Um, I mean, think for a minute, Charlie, I had a gun and a badge at 23. It's uh, kind of scary actually. Yeah. Immigrant from Cuba, <laughs> from Cuba, right. uh, as we say in Miami from Cuba. Cuba. Oh. And, uh, I won't know, do my, my Scarface impersonation. Yeah. <laughs> Did, uh, now you're taking me back to that bus ride. So we did <laughs> did my 25 years uh, in the bureau, and then found myself literally the 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 week after I retired, starting to feel the calls to uh, to go out and give uh, presentations, and 
and I've been doing that ever since. And, uh, and that's how we got, uh, that's how I met you. I've been, I've been doing writing books and, and, uh, and giving presentations, but so I who, mean, who influenced you the, you know, the, so you, you come here, yeah. but who were the influencers were the two or three people that really influenced you to go yeah. in the direction of the FBI. It isn't like, you know, you went to Brigham Young, tried to play football and then ended up in the FBI. What happened there? What crystallized well, that for well, you? you? I mean, that's a profound question. I mean, when it comes to influence, uh, you know, as with so many of us, our parents, uh, you know, my, my father, who uh, is, was an unbelievably honest man, I mean, I, he, he, he was running his own store in Miami, a, where, a, a hardware store in Miami, and he would get in line to pay for six nails in his own store. Wow. Uh, I mean, wow. it, it, the level of honesty that uh, that, that man had, uh, returning pennies to, 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 to people, my mother who, who worked hard um, and, and, and so forth, I think you know, there, it, there was a confluence of things. Um, I, I, I wound up at uh, Brigham Young University and lucked out. And, and there I came uh, under the eye of, I think, what were, in essence, uh, people who were scouting both for the FBI and for the CIA. Um, the CIA hires an inordinate amount of people from BYU because they, they go out on missions um, serving the uh, LDS church. Yeah. And they return with uh, these uh, great language skills. Um, in my case, I, you know, I spoke Spanish, yes, but I, but, you know, by then I, I you know, I already had a commercial uh, uh, pilot's license uh, by, uh, by the time I graduated from high school. Um, I'd been practicing uh, judo uh, and jujitsu for, for several years. And um, and I don't to this day, I don't know w what the attraction was. All I know is that, you know, these two guys, uh, these two suits showed up, handed me a manila envelope um, and said, you know, please fill this out. You've been called for, <laughs> you know, I at, at that point, you know, it was such an honor. Yeah, yeah it, it wasn't. What, what, what year was this? This was uh, this was actually 1976, and uh, so I filled it out. I turned it in, and and then I get a phone call that says everything's good to go. We've completed your background. We just have a problem. What is it? Well, Congress hasn't passed a budget, and. <laughs> what's new right and uh so we're we're holding uh we're we're not going to have any classes until next year because we don't actually have money and uh and then that turned into uh january of 78 so uh, so yeah. carter's in the white house for uh, two more years mucking it up yeah we've got the iran crisis oh yeah and then ronnie comes in well, let me tell you about the Iran crisis. Yeah, so because, you must have been involved in that, right? Well, it it it's without revealing too much. I was. Oh, this is where you have to kill me again. Go ahead. <laughs> well, it, it was one of these things where um, the United States was actually prepared um, 
on multiple levels to to rescue those uh, yeah. folks. Yes. Um, and um, there was, the, the, and everybody thinks about uh, the the failed operation. Um, I, I think it's safe to say that uh, there wasn't just one operation. That that there were other efforts to try to rescue those uh, those men and women who were trapped uh, there. To a certain, well, not to a certain extent. Fortunately, uh, Reagan came in, and within uh, I think four hours, or or was it four minutes? I can't remember. Uh, the hostages were were released. But um, that was a very uh, perilous, uh, perilous time. And uh, well, it's interesting. We're talking about that. And look what's happening on the world stage with Iran and Tehran right now. Right. Oh, and yeah. The pressure that's being put on them by the U.S. and now Britain and maybe the European countries and yeah. the alignment with Israel and Saudi Arabia and Jordan countries that were never... While they were always back channeling, were never as forthright as they are now aligned, even Egypt. Uh, it's an interesting time. It's an interesting time because, you know, for for Saudi Arabia, for the, you know, the the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan, for uh, the state of Israel, um, the, the 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 main player that's causes them consternation is uh, Iran. Yeah. It is uh, Hezbollah and uh, the instability that uh, that uh, this one nation state uh, uh, creates. Um, y- you know, when you look at the Strait of Hormuz and you see how much of the world's oil travels through there and that one nation can block that and uh, and I mean, overnight, they could literally block 80% of the world's uh, oil shipments. Um, it's 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 frightening for uh, for for a lot of people, and and that's the thing is, anytime you have instability and complexity, it's uh, you know, if it's just you and me, well, there's only two players. But when you have so many players, now it's really complex. And I, and I think that's what's, uh, you know, that drives a lot of the anxiety that we're seeing, both, both on a na- nation state level and uh, on a, uh, you know, on a financial level. The financial markets are, are, are concerned. Sure. So I'm thinking about uh, Israel, and obviously they're having one of the greatest well-trained um, forces. Did you, in your counterterrorism work in the FBI, ever interact with Israel and uh, their counterintelligence people and that kind of thing? Sure. Uh, with uh, with with Mossad, yeah, with Mossad. Uh, with a variety of uh, the thing about Israel is they have these. Very secretive, small units, but but certainly with uh, with Mossad, because um, quite often we had the same uh, interests. Uh, at the time, we were dealing with, uh, for instance, uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad. We were looking we were looking at um, uh, Black September. We were uh, looking at Abu Nidal. 
and, uh, and so over the years, uh, I had the, I had many opportunities to uh, to 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 work with them. Uh, you know, extremely professional, um, but uh, you know their their thinking is very interesting because um, it's it, for, for for them there uh, the, the, there can be no mistakes. It's like they they know they only have one chance. Yeah, uh, you know, it's go ahead. It's a, it's a it, we in America cannot think of an existential threat, but for them, it it really is an ex, existential threat. Yeah. When you're when you can overfly a country in three minutes, then you realize, okay, that's that's not a very big territory. Well, I can remember friends of mine when Israel took the Golan Heights, and the world was saying, "Give it back, give it back." And then I went to Israel for the first time and stood at the Sea of Galilee and looked across the water and straight up at the Golan Heights, and I turned to my guy and I said, "You're never giving that back." I mean, geopolitically. And then I'd come home, and everybody's like, "What's the big deal? It's just the high, you know. Give them that." No, they just shoot down on right. So people don't understand. We had an Israeli uh, emissary live with us. His name is Olfek. He's actually back here in the U.S. And one day he sat down with some friends of mine. He took out a napkin and he drew the state of Massachusetts. And he said, uh, "Let's call this. This is Israel. The state of Massachusetts is Israel." And then he drew Connecticut. And he said, "Connecticut enemy." He drew Rhode Island enemy, yeah. Vermont enemy, New Hampshire enemy. New York enemy, and then he goes Atlantic water. He goes, "This is where I live. You come, you visit me. I show you how it is." <laughs> you know, you have no reference point at all. And about- yet, and yet, Charlie, the minute you land in Israel, the what? What's the first thing they tell you that they worry about? They don't worry about terrorism. They worry about getting run over because the the, <laughs> the drivers are so bad. I go, "Don't you guys worry about?" Oh no 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 no. no, no. It's Vietnam. A- <laughs> have you been to Vietnam? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. So my son is adopted from Vietnam. And the first time I wanted to see him when he was two months old in the orphanage, I land in Ho Chi Minh, Saigon City. I yeah. get in the cab. There's no traffic lights in Vietnam. So it's 1.30 in the morning and my cab driver, we're driving. He, oh, yeah, no, no traffic light. Ah, no, no, don't wait. Woo, woo. You know, and the traffic just, and he would turn and go, ah, no, no traffic light. We have no traffic light. <laughs> Un- That's the city where you worry about. Yeah. Cab drivers, or actually not, they're probably very good. So, yeah. a couple of questions before we wrap up. Yeah. Was there ever a time in your 25 years of of doing this kind of work where you said, "Ugh, missed it, missed the sign"? Yeah. Well, you know, it uh, it's not. Was there ever a time? There were enough times where you know when you when you go out and you do uh, by by one estimate uh, I did somewhere between 10 and 13,000 interviews uh, in that time period and you you never think really about your successes you think about the times when oh man I missed that and uh, I did. I, I had a there was a, a, a female spy. I can mention her name because we uh, we took her to trial. Her name was uh, Kelly Church, and she really hurt uh, American forces and NATO. 
And this woman, um, I mean, she was a psychopath. She could lie with such skill and mm. with such, you know, one of the one of the traits of psychopathy is um, uh, how easily they they can do criminal acts. And this woman um, just was able to convince a group of us that it wasn't her, that it was somebody else. And of course, all the evidence was overseas. So it's not like we could, and it took us about a year to finally figure out once we got a hold of the evidence, once we were able to, to, uh, to uh, vet her more properly, that everything she told us was a lie. Wow. And, you know, the question is, well, didn't you see any signs? And that's not the right question. The right question is, was there anything else you could have done to expedite validating everything she told you? Mm. And I have to go back and say, well, no, because the Russians had the evidence in their hand and they weren't exactly playing. The uh, East Germans had some of that uh, information. The Czechs had some of that information. Could we have validated it if, you know, it would have been impossible to do it any quicker than uh, than than we did? So the. We make a mistake if we only focus on was there a nonverbal message there that I could have um, keyed off of, and uh, and that's a mistake a lot of people make because in fact, it, you know, it's like due diligence, and you know, due diligence, Charlie. You you always you know uh, we're always testing, validating. And uh, and and seeing where that takes us, and unfortunately, in espionage cases, it it takes so uh, so very long, and wow. um, and 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 so when I look back, yeah, I I missed a lot, but I can also say that um, that we tried to validate it, but it was just uh, impossible. Incredible story. I, I so appreciate you taking the time out with me and our listeners and viewers today. And a couple of things I wanna let people know in our area here in Western Mass, Joe's gonna be coming here December 11th. It's a Wednesday morning from eight to 10.30. And one of the things that Joe said to me when we were in the back of that bus is he said, Charlie, you know, I do a lot of talks, but if you're gonna hire me, hire me to come out and actually take the time to teach people how to read the signs. So we're doing two and a half hours with Joe. It's gonna be by invitation to our clients, but we're also reaching out to all of you that are in the police department, the fire departments in town, um, hospitals, all organizations, TSA, it's gonna be free to those organizations. We wanna really give back and have Joe come in here and help you actually be able to read the signs to keep us safe and do your jobs better. So it's going to be at Max Tavern in downtown Springfield, 8 to 1030. And the, the night before, Joe's going to be speaking at our family business center for all our family business members. So we're really uh, pleased that you're taking the time out from your international schedule to come and join us in December. Really, really appreciate it. And uh, thank you, how, Charlie. 
How can folks get a best way to get a hold of you, Joe? What's the best? Uh... The easiest, if they're interested in my books, uh, they're they're all on Amazon. Or if they want to reach me, they can go to joenavarro.net and uh, go to my website. And Charlie, thank you because you and I have been planning this for over a year, over a year, and I'm really looking forward to uh, to to our event. Uh, thank you for giving me the time to to really expand the the subject, and uh, I know we're going to have a great uh, get together. So I hope lots of people come. I really do. Yeah. So stay healthy between now and then, because it'll be a year and a half that I've been working on this. But I'm like a I'm like a bulldog. I'm not going to give up. Oh, you gotta you gotta do the whole introduction in that voice. Then. Well, Nancy and I are just glad that we're all glad that we're glad that Joe's going to be here with us. <laughs> oh my I'll god save, i'm gonna save my nixon for you when you get here yeah please do please do <laughs> and i'm not giving checkers back i don't care what anyone says <laughs> you got too much time on your hand buddy all right I charlie do. all right everybody joe thank you so much from uh, charlie epstein here at epstein financial and business and booths we're signing off and we'll see you all december 11th at max taverns have a great rest of the summer, Joe. Thanks so much. Hey, yeah. See you. See you soon. If you need anything, give me a holler. Take I will. Care. Appreciate it. All right. The time. All, All right. the best. Peace you bet. out. Bye. Bye. Bye.